Well, turn with me to Mark chapter 12 if you have your Bibles. Um, the title of this message is called Outreach is for Everyone. The subtitle is Reaching Out in Keeping with Who You Are. And this is, um, this is a little bit different. This is a more of a topical message. So normally we preach expository messages where we look at one passage and we, we draw the main point out of that passage. We, um, this is a topical message that fits into a course that we have called the Proclaim Course. And that course is really designed to help Christians share the gospel. It's designed to equip Christians to reach out to others. Uh, if you are interested, ProclaimCourse.org, we just built this website, so all of the DVDs, the videos, are actually online. So this is session two that I'm going to be doing here. So if you'd like to go through the whole course, if you'd like to brush up on it, you can find it there. Evangelism is scary. And evangelists are scary. I consider myself an evangelist. That means I'm someone who equips others to share the gospel. An evangelist isn't just someone that shares the gospel himself. He trains and helps others to do it. When we did this series back in the spring, we did a series called Proclaim. And when I did this message, Jack said, we're going to unleash Jim on you. That's scary, all right? An evangelist being unleashed on you, like, ah, ah, I'm going to make you feel guilty. I'm going to spit and yell. Well, I will do that. But I'm not going to try to make you feel guilty. I'm going to try to encourage you and, and help you with this. But listen, evangelism is scary. It's the one area of the Christian life that can get you persecuted and bring ridicule or harassment. Joel Shorey, Tim's son, who's one of the pastors with us at Covenant, he, he told me a story several months ago. He, he, he had been frequently at Starbucks, and he got to meet a few guys there, and he began to get into conversation with these guys over the weeks. And one of the guys, um, he was with this conversation. He was able to open the Bible and share with them. One guy hadn't really been there, but this other newer guy, who were older, showed up. And Joel was talking about the gospel, and talking about Christ and the exclusivity of Christ and we can only save through Jesus. And you can tell this newer guy was getting really agitated. And so he kind of looked over, but he kind of kept going to the chair. Well, finally, the guy was so mad, he stood up, pushed his chair back, and said, I don't believe any of this bleeping, bleep, bleep. The guy just starts cursing, yelling. All the eyes in Starbucks turned to this guy. Joel said, I said, was he really cursing? He said, probably at all about 20 yelling at him. And then the guy stormed off. Recently, several months ago, I had a woman while I was preaching in the bridge, she just came up to me after the bridge course and just started to berate me and tell me how I can't preach that. And what I'm saying is completely wrong. And she just started to, to give it to me. One, one of my grandfathers who passed away several years ago, uh, he was a real tough guy. He he worked for 35 years in Camden, New Jersey, running a forklift. He just—he always yelled. His mode of speech was basically yelling. And so when my brother and I had a twin brother, we both became Christians. We used to try to tell and share the gospel with him. He used to say, "Now you don't know. My mother was a religious woman." And we were like, "Grandpa, we're just..." And he, he would just show off. And and one time, my my son Asher, when he was like three years old. Had the little how good are you tried. I didn't bring one with me, but the little how good are you. Well, it's a little track that, that talks on a scale of one to ten. How good do you think you are? It takes you through the law, and it kind of goes through this. Well, my son Asher, his, his brain was moving uh, in 
couldn't keep up. And so he was hard to understand. He was going a thousand miles an hour. And he went up to my grandfather with the track and said, Grandpa, I want to show you this one. This one says, on a scale of one to ten, how good do you think you are? And my grandpa's like, okay. And he's taking it through. I'm like, oh no, this could be really tricky. And then my son said, on a scale of one to ten, he said, and this is what my son said, I'm a one. And I thought, if my grandfather understands that I am teaching my son that on a scale of one to ten, he's a one compared to God, I'm dead. Now, fortunately, he couldn't understand as at all, so we kind of got away from that. But, but evangelism, it's scary. It's challenging. Look at what it says in Mark chapter 12. This is Jesus began to speak to them in parables, and this is what Jesus said. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants, leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he, the owner, sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shameful. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. This is what it can feel like in evangelism. In today's society, people wrongly assume that they're the landowners. They get to decide what they want to do and how they're going to live. They've, they've made themselves the king. And we come to them on behalf of the true king. We come as messengers of God. We are sent by God. We're his representatives. And there are times when we are not welcome. There are times when we invite scorn and mockery and even persecution. Rico Tice, in his book, Honest Evangelism, talks about the pain line, that there is a pain line in evangelism. If we talk to people about Jesus, at some point, we're going to get hurt. At some point, we're, there's going to be pain. We're, we're going to take a hit. People are going to be hostile and offended, and at times it can even sever relationships. And this really shouldn't surprise us. I mean, think about how provocative our beliefs are. We believe that God created the heavens and the earth, that he is king over all. We believe that everyone is depraved and sinful and wicked, and that we all deserve to go to hell. We believe that Jesus' death on the cross is the only way, the exclusive way to be forgiven by God and live eternally. We know that Christians are not going to win popularity contests. In fact, Christians are more unpopular than ever before. And what we believe can not only be mocked, but at times it's considered hateful and even criminal. Several months ago, there was a, a pastor in Atlanta. He was a bivocational pastor. He had two vocations. So he worked a secular job, and he also worked as a pastor. In his secular job, they found out he was a pastor. They went online and listened to the messages that he preached, and they fired him because of what he was teaching, things that we would all agree with. They fired him. 
Listen, evangelism is not always easy. And, and maybe you've tried to share your faith in the past. Maybe it didn't go so well. Maybe you were mocked or rejected. Since you don't like to get hurt, you assume that, that something must be wrong. And so you stop. I have several relatives who used to go to the dentist. He or their kids used to go to the dentist. They had some cavities, maybe a few root canals, and they decided, I'm, I'm, I'm done with this. And they haven't been to the dentist for decades, and, and it shows. No, nobody likes pain. We generally try to avoid pain. And it's easy to assume that if we experience pain, we must be doing something wrong. If doing evangelism keeps getting you hit metaphorically, you stop doing it. You just go about your business quietly and keep things to yourself. Or maybe you understand full well that if you tell non-Christians about Jesus, it could be painful. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecute the prophets who went before you. Jesus seems to know that, that we're going to get hit. In Luke chapter 10, you right, remember when Jesus sends out the 72. In Luke 9, he sends out the 12 apostles to go out and share the gospel. He says, I want you to heal the sick and share the gospel. And then the next chapter, Luke chapter 10, he sends out the 72. So these guys are the pros. You know, the apostles, the 12, they look good. This is the 72, the 72 disciples. This is us. This is followers. And these guys are probably scared to death. Do you remember what Jesus gave him, the little pep talk that he gave him before? This is what he said. I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, can you imagine that? Like, right before they're ready to go, you guys, 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 let's bring it here. Look at hand here. Okay, on the count of three, we're going to go sheep against wolves. Okay, ready? One, two, three. Sheep against wolves. Okay, sheep against wolves. Let's go. Sheep against wolves. Sheep against wolves. Sheep. Wolf. What? I mean, that doesn't seem very motivating, does it? I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Jesus seems to understand that we're going to get hit. And maybe you know this too, but you just don't think that it's worth it. You, you see that there's a pain line, you're just not willing to cross it. Like my relatives who wouldn't go to the dentist, they saw the pain line and they said, no, 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 I, I refuse to cross that. When you think of evangelism, maybe, maybe you just think it's not worth it. Or, listen, maybe you think you have to be a certain type of person to cross the pain line. You have to have certain gifts, a certain personality, a certain amount of boldness to do evangelism. That's why it's best to leave evangelism to the ultra-aggressive, somewhat obnoxious, Marine Corps Rambo-type people. Those people are good at taking hits and receiving pain. One of them was Rocky. He was great at taking hits. Or maybe you feel like you don't have the gift of evangelism. Assuming that some people are called to reach out 
And some people are called to do other things, like hospitality. I don't know why this is the case, but I've been training in evangelism for so long. I have people say this all the time. I don't have the gift of evangelism. I have the gift of hospitality. I can't share the gospel. I can make muffins. I have no idea why this contrast occurs constantly. But, but the problem with that is, is that they assume... They think that in order to do evangelism, you have to be made that way. Like the way God made Michael Jordan to jump and to play basketball. Now listen, I'm not saying that some people are not more effective than others. What I'm saying is that we are all, all called to reach out to the law. A better way of looking at evangelism is not as a, a spiritual gift. A better way of looking at evangelism is as a spiritual discipline. Donald Whitney devotes a whole chapter to evangelism as one of the spiritual disciplines in his famous book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. This is what he says. That's why I say evangelism is a spiritual discipline. Unless we discipline ourselves for evangelism, it is very easy to excuse ourselves from ever sharing the gospel with anyone. And see, a spiritual discipline is a great way to think about this. Because if it's a spiritual discipline, it's something you have to work at. Something you have to grow in. Something you need accountability in. You need others to, to help you with this. You would never hear someone say, I'm not gifted in reading the Bible. I'll just leave that to the intellectuals. No, we, we all know that as believers we're called to read and study the Bible, even if at first we're not good at it. And it's the same in evangelism. It's something that we have to work at, something that we have to learn how to do. And it's something that we need help in, something we need accountability in. I, I find that evangelism is such an easy thing to let slip that we need to, to consistently talk about it and encourage one another to do it. Christians don't need to be uniquely gifted to evangelize. We need to be equipped. Again, I'm not saying that some people are not more effective than others when it comes to reaching the lost. But we are all commanded to reach out to the lost with the gospel. And this is all over the Bible. All over the Old Testament, God said, all over the New Testament. I mean, here's, I'll just give you a couple. Matthew 28, Mark 1, Luke 19, John 20, Acts 8, Romans 1, Colossians 4, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 Timothy 4, James 5, 1 Peter 2. The whole Bible, the whole New Testament is loaded with this call for us to reach out. It's not a matter, listen, it is not a matter of ability. It is not a matter of effectiveness. It's a matter of obedience. Because it's a command. And the fact that some people are more effective than others doesn't mean you're not supposed to do anything. We may not feel like we're effective when it comes to doing our taxes. That doesn't mean we're not supposed to do them. Regardless of how weak you feel in evangelism, you aren't disqualified from doing it. Rico Tice, again in his book, he says, I think one of the reasons we get spooked by the idea of evangelism is that the devil has played a cunning trick on the church. 
he's convinced us either that it's something that is not our job or that it's something that should be our job, but we can't do it. He whispers to us, you're not an evangelist. You're not confident, outgoing, good at answering questions. You don't need to evangelize. You can't evangelize. Now, listen, I, I know you feel weak and you feel scared. And you're tempted to think that God can't use someone like you. But let me tell you this. I'm scared too. I have been doing evangelism for 25 years, ever since I first became a Christian. And every time I've shared the gospel, every time I've wanted to reach out to someone, even just invite someone or give them a house or truck, I've been scared. Every time. Every time I go to do it, there are thoughts in my mind. Oh, maybe you shouldn't do it. You might do more damage. You oh, there's somebody in my mind behind you. They may be turned off by this. You, you, know, you don't know what's going to happen. Or other people might be, you just need to get out of there. My mind floods with excuses. You know what the key in evangelism is? It's not getting rid of your fear. You'll never get rid of your fear. It's not saying, okay, I've got to do this so much that I no longer have any fear. No. Evangelism is about looking at that fear acknowledging the fear and doing it anyway. Asking God to fill you with his spirit to overcome that fear and doing it anyway. Evangelism is about looking at the pain line and saying it's worth it. I'm going across. I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to risk this. The verse that has helped me more than any other one, when my mind is flooded with excuses every time, Romans 10, 14, how then can they call on the one in whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? How are they going to believe in Jesus? Think about this. Think about your friends. Think about your relatives. How are they going to believe in somebody they've never heard of? How are they going to believe in Jesus? If you don't tell them that. How are they going to know what he's done? How are they going to know about his death? Unless you open your mouth and say something, how can they believe in someone that they have never heard of? They can't. Listen, church, people can't believe unless they hear the gospel. They need us to talk to them. And remember, it, it's not our job to save them. You have to get this right. The goal for us in evangelism is to share the gospel and leave the results to God. That's it. If you get that gospel out there, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is what's it. If you get the message out there, that's success. doesn't matter how they respond. doesn't matter how they react. doesn't matter if they punch you, reject you, whatever. Actually, in Matthew 5, it says you're blessed if they reject you. But the goal is to get a message out. To get it out there and trust God for the results. Listen, God wants to use you. He wants to use you. You don't have to be someone that you're not. He wants to use you with your strengths and your weaknesses and your personality to reach the lost. The key is to be yourself. Authenticity is crucial. People can tell when you're trying to be someone that you're not. The good news is you don't have to be someone that you're not. 
God has created you perfectly, and he has designed you to reach out to those around you with the gospel. And evangelism is not going to look the same for everyone. I mean, the book of Acts shows us how different evangelism can look depending on someone's background, someone's training, someone's personality. Remember in Acts chapter 2, remember Peter? Well, Peter was very bold and direct. I mean, he just came right out. But Stephen in chapter 7 of Acts, remember he traced the Bible storyline. He went through all these Old Testament stories up to Christ and revealed Christ. Philip in chapter 8, he did a one-on-one Bible study with the Ethiopian eunuch. Paul in chapter 17 was very intellectual and apologetic in his approach to Athens. Aquila and Priscilla, chapter 18, they used a team approach to share the gospel. God loves to make people who are diverse. He gives people various gifts and abilities, strengths, and weaknesses. I mean, think about all the gifts, the different gifts that are listed in the Bible. Administration, serving, giving, encouragement, faith, helping, healing, leadership, mercy, prophecy, teaching, hospitality, and more. And God not only gives these gifts for the building up of the church, he gives them so that we can reach unbelievers. I mean, think about how powerful the gift of healing was used in the Bible to reach men and women with the that gift was used in tight conjunction with the spread of the gospel. We've seen that on our bridge retreats. So we go with the bridge retreat, we have our prophetic team. We've seen the gift of prophecy used powerfully in the lives of unbelievers. God uses those gifts. God can use the gift of hospitality, He can use the gift of mercy. He can use the gift of serving to reach people with the gospel. And don't just think about your gifts. Think about your strengths and the abilities you have. Think even about your interests, things that you're interested in. God can use those things to reach those who don't know Christ. What gifts and talents and interests do you have? What are some ways that God can use those things in evangelism? Now, in our Proclaim course that I mentioned earlier, we have people fill out what we call an outreach-style questionnaire. It's designed to help people see which outreach style best fits them. And people find this very freeing and encouraging. So I want to just go over briefly the six different styles of evangelism. Uh, We've adapted these from Mark Middleberg's course. It's called Becoming a Contagious Christian. And you'll probably find yourself, as we go through this, in a couple of categories. That's good. Usually there's overlap, so think maybe one or two categories here. The first is the direct style. The first style of evangelism is the direct style. The biblical example here is the Apostle Peter. He was so direct, so bold. Remember in Acts 2, 23, it says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified. And killed by the hands of lawless men. Then in verse 28, he tells him, he says, repent and be baptized. And Peter's coming right out of him. You know, he's not pulling any punches. You killed him. You crucified him. And you need to repent and be baptized. I mean, that's what I love about Peter. He's just direct. Someone with 
the direct style is comfortable speaking frankly and not dancing around the issues. They, they tend to be confident, engaging, and straightforward. How many people here think they have the direct style? Just raise your hand. It's going to be audience participation. Good. Raise your hand. It's not for Jesus. Don't be ashamed. Okay, good. So these are the direct. This is my style. This is one of mine. I would feel the direct style. Now, if you have more of a direct style, here's some cautions for you. Be careful not to be overly abrasive or to plow people over with truth. Like Christ, we want to be full of both grace and truth. We need to love people and care about them and listen to them. If you think you might have the direct style, good context for you is just when you're out in public, when you're out in the marketplace, when you're getting your hair cut, when you're doing different things, you're talking to God. Be direct. Get into those conversations. Start it up. Crank it up and see what God does. Number two is the intellectual style. The biblical example here would be the Apostle Paul. Paul was a sharp guy. He was a brilliant debater. In Acts 17, it says, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Now, someone with an intellectual style enjoys discussing deeper truths and thinking through issues thoroughly. They tend to be inquisitive, analytical, and logical. How many people think they might have the intellectual style? Good, yeah, good. Good job, right here. Some people are like, oh, I don't want to raise my hand because people think I'm intellectual. You're intellectual. It's fine. We all know that, right? You can just raise your hand. Um, some cautions for those of you with the intellectual style. Be careful not to get into unhelpful debates or to rely on your own wisdom. Your goal is to steer things back to the gospel and avoid unhelpful rabbit trails. If you think you might have the intellectual style, good context to serve in. Uh, might be to take one of these bridge courses, the bridge in a box, and maybe do it with some coworkers or do it on campus or in your neighborhood and look for opportunities, conversations that you can get into with people. Number three, the testimonial style. The biblical example here is the man that was delivered from demons. In Mark 5 it says, And the man delivered from demons went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So someone with a testimonial style tends to relate their experiences well to others. And they enjoy sharing what God has done in their lives. They're good storytellers, authentic, and they're active listeners. How many people think they might have a testimonial style? Okay, good. All right, good. That's a good, that's a good number of you. Here's some cautions for you. Sharing your testimony isn't the same as sharing the gospel. You know, testimonies can be very popular. If you say, you know, testimony is very first personal. I found this, and I saw this, and I believe I was, I started reading the Bible, and I saw this there, blah, blah, blah. And people say, okay, well, that's good for you. Technically, you're not sharing the gospel until you move to second person, and you say, and you are also a sinner. You also need grace. You need to turn from so be careful as you're thinking through that, to, to, that you have to, sharing your testimony isn't exactly the same as sharing the gospel. Try to relate your testimony to others and then use your story to bridge to the gospel. If you think you might have a test, the testimonial style, good context starting to be the prison ministry. Um, you can serve uh, in the bridge course as well because we use that a lot there. 
Number four, the relational style. So relational style. The biblical example here is Matthew or Levi. It says in Luke 5, And Levi made Jesus and his disciples a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. Now, I love this story because it's Matthew had this great idea. I'm going to get my, my believing friends, Jesus and the disciples, my unbelieving friends, we're going to get them all together for a party. And mix them all together. That's a great idea. You can see the relationships that he maintained. He was using that to bring people to, to Christ. Someone with a relational style tends to be very warm and friendly and enjoys relating to others on a personal level. They're hospitable, conversational, and friendship-oriented. How many people think they might have that relational style? Okay. Good. Good. That's a good number. Here's some cautions for you. Be careful not to value friendships over sharing the gospel. The gospel is challenging, and it may cause friction in a relationship, and that's okay. If you think you have the relational style, good context would just be to use your home. Consider inviting people into your home, or inviting them over for a barbecue, or, or a get-together, or go out to lunch with someone. And then later, consider inviting them back for an evangelistic Bible study, or maybe use the bridge in a box. Number five is the invitational style. The biblical example is the Samaritan woman at the well. I love this in John 4. It says, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Many Samaritans from that town believed. So someone with the invitational style is really good at rallying people together and including others in what they're doing. They are winsome, interpersonal, and persuasive. How many people have the invitational Okay, we need a few more of you guys. We got like three of us. Okay, invitational. Raise your hands. Come on, stand up for Jesus. Okay, we need you guys to be inviting people. We need you to be reaching out and doing this. Now, some cautions for those with the invitation time. Inviting people to church or other functions can never replace your personal responsibility to share the gospel. Okay? Now, if you think you have the invitational style, a good context to serve in would be anytime you're not at home or at church. Anytime you are not there and you're out in public to look for opportunities to invite folks. Number six, the last one is the serving style. The biblical example, this is not a perfect one, is Tabitha, though. In Acts 9, it says, Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. So someone with a serving style enjoys serving other people and demonstrating God's love through acts of mercy and kindness. This is someone that's selfless and compassionate and action-oriented. How many people have the serving style? Okay. Our serves maybe. Some people are like, I don't know. Okay, you probably do. Okay. Um, some cautions for the serving style. Just as words should be no substitute for actions, actions should be no substitute for words. Romans 10, 14 makes it clear that we must verbally tell people the gospel. If you think you might have a serving style, just start looking for needs around you. Look for the needs in your neighborhood. Look for the needs in your workplace or your community and start using your gifts. So there they are. Direct, intellectual, testimonial, relational, invitational, and serving. Which styles fit you best? And write them down if you need to. Using people have more than one, and that's good. And let me just give you a couple helpful suggestions. 
If you haven't been doing evangelism for a while, just play to your strengths, okay? Maybe you have the serving style, you're real handy. Just go help your neighbor. Go figure out a way you can help. Or maybe you're good at baking things. Bake something. Take it over. Just play to your strengths. It can also be helpful to partner with someone with different strengths. Let's say that you have a co-worker who has all these hard questions. And you don't feel like you really have the intellectual style. You're more just a serving style. And so you can invite them over for a meal and then bring someone with the intellectual style. Invite Alex Chen to come over. And then when they ask a hard question, like, that's a great question. Alex, why don't you take that? I'm going to go get some more drinks. Anybody need more drinks? Uh, something to eat here? And you just feed them the food and let Alex do that thing, okay? So there's ways we can, we can partner with others. But here's the thing. The reality is we're all called to do all of these, aren't we? Because we're all called to serve, right? Our neighbor says, you know, can you help me with this? Oh, no, I'm sorry. I don't have the serving style. I'm more intellectual style. Get me more theological questions. I'm your man. But I really can't help you with that project. No, it's that we're all called to serve, right? And we're all called to invite people into the church, right? We're all called to, to build relationships. We're all called to share our testimonies. In 1 Peter 2, it says that we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his glorious light. We're all called to, to answer questions too, aren't we? First Peter 3, it says that we're called to give a defense of our faith. And we're all called to, to be direct. You know, at times with someone maybe that we're not going to see again, maybe somebody on a plane or on, on a deathbed, I forgot to tell you this story about my grandfather, the one who grew up in uh, when he was dying, he was on his deathbed. I remember I went over to New Jersey to the hospital. My whole family was gathered around. And they were there, and I just remember I, I went to him, and, and he, I could tell he could hear, but he was unconscious, kind of. And, and so I just sat right down to his ear. And it was kind of a war zone, but he was so angry and young, but he couldn't move, he couldn't do anything. He was a captive audience. I just got right down to him, and I said, Grandpa, I said, it's not too late for you. So Jesus loves you. He died on the cross, and I just spoke to God, and there was nothing he could do about it. Because they said, if you're in selection, God is good. And so I just spoke, and I just told him about Christ and the glory of the gospel. Sometimes we have to be direct. I was nervous. My whole family, I said, I don't know what they're going to think. I have no idea. All my aunts and uncles unsaved on that whole side. What am I going to do? He's about to die. So there's sometimes even that we're called to be direct. I I like to look at these styles as tools in the belt. Certain tools might work better for different jobs. But if you're not sure what to do, just start with your strength. God wants to use you. He really does. He doesn't just want to use the person sitting next to you. He wants to use you with your strengths and your weaknesses and your personality to reach out to people with the hope of the gospel. You don't have to be someone else. In fact, if you were someone else, you wouldn't be able to reach the people that God wants you to reach. They don't need a super bold, charismatic evangelist that knows the answer to every theological question. They need you. They need you to just take a small step and to reach out to them in love. They need you to look at the pain line and say, I'm going to cross it. And here's the good news. There is an increasing hostility to the gospel message, but there's also an increasing hunger. 
People are beginning to realize that the secularism and materialism and throwing off of all morals is not working. It's empty and it's hollow. And that means that you're more and more likely to find people quietly hungering for the gospel, even as our culture becomes more hostile towards it. Hostility and hunger. That's what you'll find when you tell people about Jesus. But you have to risk the hostility to discover the hunger. Let me close with this story. I, um, my brother and I, we had a good, we had a friend uh, in high school. His name was Alvaro Rivera. And he's an interesting guy. We, he was a real smart guy, he was kind of nerd. And, but we got to be friends with him because we had some friends with him. And he was a Christian, but we didn't know that he was a Christian. It was years, it was a couple of years before, before we discovered this. And I, I remember one time it was in chemistry class, and um, and he just, I don't know why he did this, but he just decided to share with us, and he said, do you guys think you're good enough to get to God? You know, he said, see if it happens, we're like, yeah. We just look at us, look at the resume, and we, we're great. And he started to talk to us and quote the Bible. And said it's impossible to be good enough to get God. Well, my brother and I are, you know, we're born in Irish Catholic family. We're, we're good at arguing. We, we have no idea what we're talking about. So we just started arguing. And a lot of arguments were like, no, you know, no, And so I remember we went back and started doing this. So we, like, we went back home and we said to my mom, Mom, do we have, um, do we have a Bible anywhere? And she's like, oh, yeah, I think we have, you know, I think our Catholic writing Bible is. It's somewhere I told the story of Bridget. So we got this huge Bible down on the shelf, this big white Bible brought down. It's like this mushroom cloud of dust kind of came up. It had a little framed picture of Jesus in it. Like, oh, that's really cool. And then we started opening, like, eh. and okay, there's a pressed flower, there's a pressed flower, there's a two-dollar bill. What is this, a museum? And so we just started to go through, and somehow I have no idea. We found John 3:16, right? God so And so we come the next day, all found like in chemistry class. We're like, Hey, Alvaro, guess what? Uh, we were reading the Bible, and it says in the book of Johnny, um, if you believe, you're in. So we believe, so we're in. So there, so take that, you're busted. And he knew the Bible well enough, and he said, well, the Bible also says in James that even the demons believe in God and shudder. I'm like, what this kid, man, what in the world? It's like Bible whiz man. How does this guy know all this? And so, so God used that. And then he gave us a Bible. My brother and I would fight over reading the Bible. And, and I started to read the Bible for the sole reason of proving him wrong. But eventually, as I kept reading the Bible, the Holy Spirit kind of took over from my pride and started to reveal Christ. And God used that to rescue me and to save me from my sins. Now, here's, here's my thought. I wonder what made Alvaro all of a sudden decide to talk to us about the Lord. We've known him for years. We, we would do certain things with him. Like he would kind of watch the same shows that weren't always good with us, listen to music, but he wouldn't party with us, he wouldn't drink and do all that. So he had some life. So we had this friendship, but he ne- we never knew he was a Christian. And then all of a sudden, why did he do that? Was it a seminar that he went to? Was it a message that he heard? Gave him the courage that he decided that he was going to cross the pain line. And listen, we did not make it easy for him. 
we would argue with him. He, he might have thought that he was a failure because of how we would respond. He didn't know what we were doing at home. He just knew we were fighting with him there. Or he could have just shared once and just given up. Sorry, I try to talk to these guys, but they obviously don't know what to talk about. They just like to argue. I'm, you know, I'm just going to wash my hands. I did what I could. Sorry, I tried, Lord. No, and, and listen, we never asked him a question. You know, people say, well, listen, just live it out. Just live it out, and they'll ask, ask they'll finally ask you a question. No, sometimes they won't. We never asked him one question. Guess what? He took the initiative. He took the step. He was the one that saw the pain line and decided to cross it, and it transformed our lives. You know, one of the things I appreciate about Alvaro is he didn't try to become someone he was not. He didn't use some deep evangelistic voice and say, dearly beloved, we are gathered. He didn't do anything like that. He was just himself. And he wasn't perfect. His witness wasn't perfect. But he used his gifts, his strengths, and his weaknesses to share the gospel. He saw that pain line. And he said, I'm going across it. And God used it to transform May my brother, may God fill us with his spirit. May God fill this church with his spirit and give us courage to cross that pain line and proclaim the gospel to those around us. Let's pray. God, I thank you for Alvaro Rivera. I still don't know why he did it. I don't know what motivated him. But thank you for his courage. Thank you that he reached out. And thank you that you saved me and you saved my brother through his witness. God, I pray that you would fill this church with your spirit and give each person here boldness. I pray that no one here would, would say, oh, well, I'm not supposed to do this. I pray we would all feel our calling to do this and that you would give us the courage to reach out in ways that fit us. I pray that you would fill this celebration dinner, this bridge course. I pray that you bless the course at Dave's place, I pray that you bless the course of the women's space. God, would you send us the lost? And would you fill this place with people who've been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? In your name we pray. Amen.